Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. We're continuing our sermon series looking at Mark's gospel Um, The passage we're going to study today is printed in your bulletin, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. As Cindy said, you know, we really want to be a safe community where it's honest to admit suffering and struggle. And someone, before we started, uh, somebody on the worship team said, you know, you used to always give us these recaps of the college football scores, and we used to love it. And I'm like, well, I kind of got a lot of you know, grief for that. So I haven't really done that much, but I do in light of Cindy saying we want to be safe for people that are suffering, just say, I'm so sorry to the Auburn fans. <laughs> That's not a joke, right? When Jesus says, you know, to those that have more will be given, it feels like a twisted way with Bama. They just keep getting more and more. So that was devastating. I'm, I'm sad for the Ohio State Buckeye fans too, but anyway, we come here to receive comfort from God's word. So um, let me pray. And then we're going to jump in. Gracious Father, we thank you for an opportunity um, to gather together to study your word, to receive from you. We know that your word is living and active. And as Jesus explains in our passage today, um, functions like a seed that needs to go deep and take root in our hearts. And that is something that you have to do. You have to, um, by your spirit, enable us to hear and to believe and receive your word. And so I pray um, that your word will go forth to accomplish your purpose and that it won't return void. And even as we look at this text, Lord Jesus, you say there's four types of um, people, four types of hearts that receive your word and only one out of the four um, actually take it deep in their hearts and are transformed by it. Um, That's a scary thing to consider, how easily we can be deceived. Help us not to presume that we are um, somewhere spiritually in relationship to you that's just not true. And we need your spirit to come and awaken us to reality. We do, um, in a serious manner, want to lift up those among us that are suffering and struggling. Those whose hearts are heavy, especially coming out of Thanksgiving, different dynamics and family relationships, things that make it very hard Make it difficult to really sing that you're good and faithful always um, in the midst of confusion and loss. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you draw near to the brokenhearted. You bind up those that are suffering. And you tell us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So we do pray for your tender mercy to be upon them. And we know, Lord Jesus, one of the main ways you bind up the wounds of your people is through your people. Um, So help us to be a kind and gentle, a gracious and loving community. Help us to be those that are um, quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. We pray that you'll continue the good work that you've begun in our hearts. We want to lift up our South End and Cotswold congregations. Please be with Tripp as he is preaching at Cotswold in the last minute because Mark got sick. Um, Be with him. Speak powerfully through him. We pray for all the churches in our city and in the world that your gospel of grace will go forth 
and that, Lord Jesus, you, the word who became flesh, um, will be made manifest and that you will be really portrayed as the beautiful king and savior that you are. And I pray that you'll even miraculously do that now um, through me. I pray that for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. I'm just going to read the first nine verses to start. So Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up, increasing, and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and even a hundredfold. And then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've been with us, you know that Jesus' popularity continues to grow, but in a surprising twist, now as he is gaining more and more popularity, greater and greater crowds are coming from far distances to hear from him, he begins to teach in parables, which are stories, they're metaphors, meant to communicate a deeper spiritual meaning, but they're clearly confusing, which is surprising. Like you would think the greater and greater platform you have, the simpler and clearer you would want to be. And and especially here, the crowd would have been thinking, Jesus, what are you talking about? You spoke so clearly about the Sabbath and how people misinterpret the Sabbath, but now you're telling us these parables And you don't even give an explanation. He leaves the crowd with this cliffhanger in verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he goes off and just leaves them wondering, what the heck is he talking about? About a sower sowing seed. Many commentators believe that while Jesus got up to speak, there were most likely farmers on the hillside doing literally what he's explaining, scattering seed on different types of soil. The question this clearly raises is, why does Jesus choose to teach this way? Michael Card explains it this way. He says, there is no public explanation. The crowd is left with the story, that is all. This is the greatest strength as well as the greatest weakness of Jesus' parables. If we do not engage, we will not get it. The parables demand interaction. By their very nature, they reveal the character of the person who listens or does not listen to them. In other words, Parables function as a filter. They really weed out those that are coming to Jesus simply because they want something from him versus those that actually want to know him. And we see this, again, as Jesus leaves, and then when his disciples ask him, he enters in and explains, verses 10 through 12. When Jesus was alone, those around him with the 12, they asked him about the parables. He said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. What is Jesus explaining? 
He's explaining something that runs throughout the scriptures, which is God opposes the proud, but he gives grace quickly and readily to the humble. The default mode of our sinful hearts is a level of pride that leads to self-deception. Pride is the ultimate evil. Pride is what made the devil the devil and what fills our hearts as a result of sin. And our pride makes us self-deceived about reality. And Jesus says the primary way that shows up is that we regularly think that we see when we're blind. We regularly think we hear, but we really do not understand. We think we know, but we are really living a foolish delusion. In their book, Leadership and Self-Deception, in the Arbinger Institute, they say this. This is the quote I put on the front of your bulletin. And we had to read this as a class in the doctoral program I'm a part of at Covenant Seminary. And it was fantastic in, in a, you know, a convicting sort of way. They say self-deception is the most central of all problems. Self-deception is so pervasive that it touches every aspect of life. Touches is perhaps too gentle a word to describe its influence. Self-deception actually determines one's experience in every aspect of life. Self-deception is like this. It blinds us to the true cause of problems. And once we're blind, all the solutions we can think of will actually make matters worse. Whether at work or home, self-deception obscures the truth about ourselves, corrupts our view of others and our circumstances, and it inhibits our ability to make wise and helpful decisions. To the extent that we are self-deceived, our happiness will be undermined at every turn. In Romans 1, Paul clearly explains that this is the case for every person in their natural human condition. Romans 1, he says, starting in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so what is the truth he's referencing? He says, what can be known about God is plain to all people. This is known as God's general revelation. He says, God has shown it to them, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that all men are without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And this is why Jesus, in the strangest part of the passage that we're studying, quotes from Isaiah 6, now, here's the context for the quote that Jesus uses. At the beginning of Isaiah 6, Isaiah says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And then one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And here's the part to underline or focus on. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah said, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So notice the connection there with what Paul is saying in Romans 1 and what Isaiah saw in his vision of the temple of the Lord. The whole earth is full of the glory of God. What can be known about God is clearly perceived, yet we naturally suppress that truth. 
and deny it so that we do not honor God or give him thanks. And that's what's so striking about Isaiah's response is when he is struck for the first time with the understanding, when he was able to hear and perceive reality clearly that God is holy and I am sinful, he immediately cries out, woe is me, I am lost, I am unclean. I dwell with an unclean people. That doesn't hit us the way it should. So much of God's people, their whole identity, this is what the Sabbath issue got so triggering for with the Pharisees, is that they said, we're clean and everyone else is unclean. We keep your laws so that we make this distinction. A part of their pride and identity was we're clean people. And Isaiah says, oh my gosh, when I begin to perceive reality clearly, the number one thing that comes to mind is I am unclean and I am in deep need of a savior. And as a result for him to be beginning to see and hear and perceive for the first time, he finds forgiveness. And this is how salvation works in the kingdom of God. If you think you see, you're blind. If you admit you're blind, that means you are beginning to see reality clearly. If you think you hear and understand, then you really don't. But if you were confused and amazed and blown away by the thought that God could love a sinner like me, then you hear and understand reality clearly. This is why Jesus says in verse 11 to his disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. The, the word translated secret may, if you have a different translation, be um, translated mystery. It's the Greek word mysterion, which literally means um, something that is hidden that cannot be figured out unless it is revealed to you. Paul says it this way to the church in Corinth. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Translation, if you understand what is true from God's word, it is only because of God's grace and kindness given to you. Oh, if we ever, ever, ever get caught up in pride and arrogance towards those who don't believe and think in our hearts they are so dumb, they are so foolish, we are in the death grip of Satan in that very moment. Now, immediately after Isaiah is forgiven, God says to him, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, what is going on here? This seems extremely confusing. It seems like the opposite of, of what we think and read typically in God's word, almost as if God doesn't want his people to be forgiven. Well, that's clearly not what is going on. Remember, we must always interpret scripture in light of scripture. We must always let the very simple and clear text help us understand the ones that seem more confusing. This is clearly a warning. And what Jesus is saying in this is that all of God's teaching are full of life-changing truth, but only for those that hear and receive it. And only the humble can hear. Only those that humble themselves to receive from God are able to understand. And so parables function like a filter. And what God is saying is, um, those that won't humble themselves, the more they hear and don't respond, the harder their hearts are going to become. To such a point where they at some time won't even be able to respond because they will become so calloused to the truth that it literally will be hidden from their eyes even when they are being told the gospel 
in the simplest terms possible. So Luke 19, Jesus says this, when he drew near to the city and he saw it, he wept over it. He said, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What was he saying? Is you've grown up presuming upon God's kindness so much, not taking it to heart, not responding in humility and repentance. And so now you're so calloused to the truth that it's hidden from your eyes. And lest we say, gosh, they were so foolish, we would not be like those Israelites of Jesus' day. Paul gives this warning to the church in Rome. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's the warning. If you come to church regularly, if you have been coming to church for years, going to community group for years, going to Bible study for years, and you are not being broken and humbled and responding to God's word, you need to stop. And just so you understand what I'm saying, I mean stop coming to church. Stop going to Bible studies. Stop going to community group. You need to go try to find life apart from God in whatever way seems best to you. Because by coming and going through the motions and pretending and faking it, you are hardening your heart in an unbelievably dangerous way. Remember, Jesus, one of his most famous parables was the parable of the father that had two sons. It's often translated in our Bible, the parable of the prodigal son. But Tim Keller rightfully pointed out that's actually not the the title it should have. It should be the, the parable of a father with two sons. The older son always did morally what was right. He went to church. He did all the things, never broke any major commands. He was a pillar of the community. But his heart was hardened to his need for grace. The younger son says, I don't really have any interest in a relationship with you, father, which is clearly talking about God. So he goes off and squanders his inheritance in wild living. And when he realizes that everything in the world apart from Jesus overpromises and underdelivers, what happens? In humility and brokenness, he comes back. And he says, I'm not even worthy to be your son. And then the story ends with that son entering into the joy of his father, entering into the new heavens and new earth wedding banquet feast while the older brother, self-righteous one, sits out in the field and won't even participate. This is an unbelievable warning for our hearts. If you're here today and when I read that passage, you began to think, I got it. I know what that means. Well, you, you just let me tell you, that is, you're really, really in danger. You're in danger of being so self-deceived and not understanding your need of grace that I want to invite you and encourage you as strongly as I can to repent and ask God, please have mercy on me, a sinner. So that's the intro to the passage. <laughs> I know that's too long, and, and that's... In a sense, it is an intro, but I was so struck this week when when, when Jesus goes on to explain it, and he says there's four types of hearts that hear the gospel message, and only one type responds. Now, think about it. He's saying that to a crowd where every single person traveled to see him. He didn't bust up in their, like, school or lecture and interrupt the programming. They all came saying, we want to see this man, Jesus, And he's like, yeah, but only one-fourth of you actually really want to 
hear what I have to say. Again, it's such a warning for our hearts. And so he goes on to explain, he says to his disciples, do you not understand the parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Once again, God gives grace to the humble. They could have easily gotten offended. They they could have in their pride not even asked the question, we don't understand. Jesus says, if you'll humble yourself, I'll explain it to you. The sower sows the word of God. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear it, Satan immediately comes. He takes away the word that is sown in them. And then these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The one who hears the word, they receive it immediately with joy, but they have no root. They only endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Others are sown among thorns, those that hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in and they choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And finally, those that were sown on good soil are the ones that hear the word, accept it and bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now this is very fascinating. If you're familiar with God's word, you know, often in scripture, um, God's word is referred to as a sword or a hammer. But here Jesus says the word of God is actually like a seed, which is so weak. Three of the four types of ground the seed falls on, Jesus says, um, it doesn't even have the power to penetrate deeply. Tim Keller said, notice how weak this is. When a farmer drops a seed, he doesn't yell, bombs away. This is going to change the world. (laughs) But the reality is that even a small, weak seed, if it goes deep enough, can produce everlasting fruit. Or think about an acorn, for example. An acorn falls to the ground and a little kid riding a tricycle can smash it. But an acorn also has the ability, if it goes deep enough, to cover the entire earth in wood. And so first type of soil, the first heart, Jesus says, those are along the path the word is sown But when they hear it, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And so maybe this is where you are today. Maybe you don't even want to be here. Maybe you're here because of family pressure. Maybe you feel like you have been um, forced to come. Jesus, the most famous teacher in all of human history, invites you to consider that maybe your resistance to the gospel is a result of you being acted upon by forces that do not have your best interests in mind. Later in Galatians, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, which means the fruit that comes from the Spirit of God dwelling in your heart by faith, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. One question to consider if right now you're hostile to the truth claims of Jesus is do you want those things in your life or not? is the way that you're living currently, is the worldview which is shaping your life and thoughts and decisions and actions producing that type of fruit. Jesus alone said that he came to give life and give it abundantly. It will be interesting here to to dismiss this and think, oh, well, Satan comes and he snatches the word. I'm not quite sure what that means. But remember, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And because he's wiser than we are, it's not going to be totally obvious. You're not just going to be like, oh my gosh, I wish Satan would leave me alone so I could really hear God's word and receive it. One commentator said the main emphasis of Jesus' metaphor here was busyness. 
referring to the main path, the main highway where people travel to do their business. He says, these people beat the ground of their own lives, asphalt hard with their frenetic feet. This was and is a warning to people on the go who have no time for contemplation, who rarely give a second thought to spiritual realities. Now, you don't need me to be Captain Obvious and tell you this, that we are an unbelievably busy and distracted culture And I'm not going to go off on some little mini rant tirade about the danger of our phones, right? But we are so easily distracted. Take advantage of the Sabbath. Take advantage of an opportunity to put your phone in a drawer and maybe just go on a walk or get somewhere quiet to consider for one hour a week deeper significant spiritual truths. There's such a danger of the busyness in which we often live. The second type of soil Jesus says, are those that are sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately it springs up and they have joy, but there's no root. So they endure for a little while, but when tribulation, persecution, or any type of suffering comes, they immediately fall away. The rocky ground was very shallow. Um, In the context of which Jesus was teaching and explaining, this would have been common and understandable that these types of seeds go in quickly and immediately produce quick fruit, but then they wither away. The second group of people, Jesus says, are utilitarian. They're big fans of Jesus, but their appreciation of him is contingent of him giving them what they want. As soon as they begin to experience suffering, hardship, persecution, they determine it's really not worth it to be associated with Jesus. And maybe that's where some of you are today. Maybe life has not turned out the way you've hoped. Maybe you don't have the spouse that you dreamed of. Maybe the internal struggles you've prayed against have not subsided. Maybe your career aspirations. Maybe you're feeling this most acutely coming out of Thanksgiving with the different family dynamics that just make you want to bang your head against the wall. And so you're showing up this morning and you're really wondering, is it, is it really worth it to follow Jesus and seek to be his disciple? And the clear answer to that question is no, if you're only following him because you expect him to make this life work. He never promises that. He never promises if you follow me that everything is just going to be hunky-dory in this life. In John 16, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. This isn't a parable. This isn't meant to be confusing. As simple and clear as I can explain it, in this world, you will have trouble and tribulation and suffering, but you can take heart. I have overcome the world. Paul, in his letter to his apprentice Timothy, said this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The good news of the gospel of Jesus is not that we're not going to have struggle and, and suffering in this life, but rather that God makes himself available to us in the person of Jesus. And he promises eternal life with him in the new heavens and new earth where no suffering will exist when he returns. The third group of people are those that have the opposite experience from the second. Rather than having the troubles of this life cause them to fall away, they are distracted from spiritual maturity by the riches of this world. Jesus said, others are sown among thorns. They hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. I think you already know what I'm going to say before I even say it. This is without a doubt my biggest pastoral concern for us as a church. The wealth, the connections, 
the networking that can take place in the South Charlotte Christian community. Maybe becoming a Christian has really benefited and blessed you in significant ways. I hear people say often, oh yeah, man, I wanted to come to church because I got community. And not just friends where I can open up and talk about family struggles and other issues, but man, my my network and business connections, it's just been taking off. And those in and of themselves aren't bad things. But if you're coming for those things instead of Jesus, this is an unbelievable warning for our hearts. I've told the story before, but it bears repeating 17 years ago when I was an intern at Hope and Richard Pratt, a seminary professor who works with Third Millennium Ministries, came and preached and we were a small church meeting at the YWCA and it felt like his only goal was to offend every person in the church. And he preached on the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father in heaven, you know, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And he's like, none of y'all even pray this. None of y'all care. You only want God to bring about your kingdom and your blessings. And I mean, the entire sermon, I mean, it literally felt like he was just wanting to like, you know, drop kick everybody in, in there. So when it was over and he left, shocker, no one even spoke to him. And I see him in the hallway and I'm like cleaning stuff up. And I still was kind of in this twisted up weird place that thought if God's going to really accept me because of my past, I got to go do some kind of terrible, miserable thing for him. Maybe go be a martyr. So I run up to him like, Dr. Pratt, that was great. When I graduate seminary, I'm going to pray about going to Darfur to be a missionary because there was like a genocide going on in Darfur. That was like the worst place I could think of. It's like worse than Russia. And I'm like expecting him to put his arm around me and be like, yes, successful service. Let's go to lunch. Let me get your number. Instead, he doesn't even break stride. He just keeps walking. I can still remember him walking on the YWCA hallway and he goes, Darfur would be easy. You want to serve Jesus, stay right here and get these rich people to repent of loving money. And I'm just like, boom. Keller said, when you drop seeds, it may not be like bombs away. That was a bombs away (laughs) moment. And I remember going to lunch with our community group and telling Stephanie the story and then thinking, I'd much rather live in Charlotte, right, than Darfur. That would be terrible. Now, 17 years later, that was my main concern this past summer on my sabbatical. Is Jesus, do you really want me to stay here? I don't like what this culture with my sinful heart mixed in is doing to me. I have deep concerns about what it does to our family and the the, the encouragement of the keeping up with the Joneses, of everything needs to look a certain way. The, The way I've noticed my heart move from contentment to a sense of envy and, oh, why don't we have a bigger kitchen? Why don't we have this, this, and that? And again, I'm not just totally putting that on our culture. Like that's clearly my sinful heart attaching wrongly to those things. But this is a legit concern for us. Jesus gives us this warning in 1 John 2. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And the final group, of course, is the one that we all want to be in. After three groups of bad soil, unreceptive hearts, Jesus says, but those that were sown on good soil are the ones that hear the word. They accept it and bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. The clear, obvious question we have to ask is, well, how do we end up in this group? And the simple answer is by doing exactly what the disciples did. Coming to Jesus in humility and admit we don't understand, but we want to. Will you change our hearts and tell us what is true? 
Good soil people are humble and receptive. Notice that good soil doesn't produce the seed, rather it simply receives it. And the only difference in the good soil and the three bad soils is how deep the seed goes. Practically, this means that we should regularly ask God, change my heart, help me to believe the gospel more and more. Plant the seed of your word deeper into my heart and please, Lord, protect me when I think I've got it all figured out. One of my heroes in the faith right now is a man named Dr. George Shank. He's in his 80s. I've told Luke about him. He's from Nebraska, played football at Nebraska, and um, he's one of the professors in the program I'm in at Covenant. And you would expect, um, as a PhD, you know, 80-year-old professor, that, man, he would just have kind of all this wisdom, academic wisdom that he's just dropping constantly, and he does have a ton of wisdom. But the thing that strikes me is every time I see Dr. Shank, it feels like he just converted yesterday. He is always like a child who cannot believe the gift he's received at Christmas. Like an orphan who didn't expect any presents, he cannot believe how kind and gracious God has been to him. In the Valley of Vision, there's this prayer called the mover, and it says, Lord, may I always be astonished at the difference between my receiving and my deserving. And that is a reflection of a good soil heart where the seed goes deeper and deeper and deeper. 1 Peter 1 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. When the seed of God's word goes deep into our hearts by faith, it will continue to produce fruit, Jesus says, 30, 60, and even 100-fold. It'll change our lives. It'll make us abundantly fruitful, primarily in a way that will be attractive and other people will want to know, Peter says, about the hope that lives within us. And one of the ways you'll know that you're producing good fruit is you'll be shocked when people come and want to ask you about it versus the Pharisees that think, why don't people listen to me? Look at how great I am. You'll regularly be amazed. A few, a few people have asked me how was Thanksgiving, and I was telling Stephanie, I think this is probably the best Thanksgiving I've had with my family um, in easily a decade. And the reason I don't think is because there was any behavioral change with any of the unhealthy dynamics in my family, but at our men's Bible study on 1 Timothy two weeks ago, Ryan was teaching, and there's this long section in 1 Timothy 5 about caring for widows, and it's kind of weird about all the different dynamics and who really qualifies as a widow for help in the church and mercy ministry and all this. And then Paul says, but if a widow has family that can care for them, they need to care for them. For anyone who doesn't care for their own family is worse than an unbeliever. Nothing in that. I've studied that book before. We, we've all, all the stuff, right? But as we're discussing and talking, um, Tripp, one of our other pastors, he says, guys, we need to realize um, that nobody that was hearing this was thinking, oh, yeah, I'm intentionally acting worse than an unbeliever. What they had done is convinced themselves of reasons why they didn't need to care for their family. And he goes, translation, in our day, we love counseling. And I'm the biggest champion of counseling in Barnabas Center. And he said, what we'll find out in counseling is there's certain toxic, unhealthy relationships we need to distance ourselves from. We need to have boundaries, and that's true. He said, but all too often, we'll twist it, and we'll say, you know what? It's just not comfortable being in a relationship with sinful people. Of course, being blind to the fact that I'm extremely sinful. And then we'll use that as an excuse to just basically cut our family out. And it was as if the word of God was not a seed. It was like a heat-seeking arrow that struck my heart. And the Lord literally said to me, that's what you do. 
you do that all the time with your family. You take all these counseling categories and you twist them into reasons why you don't need to love and engage with your family because it's not convenient. And it was unbelievably convicting for me. And see, that's the point of when God's word goes deeper, it's not, hey, Matt, quit breaking the love your family rule. It's, have you forgotten how much it costs the son of God to love you? Do you think you are easy and convenient to love? No. But for the joy set before him, Jesus went to the cross for me and for you. And the more that truth takes root deep in the foundation of my heart, it makes me willing and able to go and love my family. And honestly, the main thing it does is it makes me more aware of the reality that I'm unbelievably hard to love. Out of the 16 people in my house the last four days, I'm arguably the hardest person to love out of the whole group. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when we believe that, man, the gospel becomes good news. And you begin to see fruit popping up, and you're surprised and amazed by it. Oh, Lord, may we always be astonished at the difference between our receiving and our deserving. Lord Jesus, we pray now that even as we respond in worship, you will press the truth of your gospel, the seed of your word, deeper into our hearts. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the word made flesh who dwelt among us, the Lamb of God who came and took away the sin of the world. Oh, help us not to presume upon your riches of kindness, but know that your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And so we pray that you'll do that even now. I pray in Christ's name, amen.